Hello, and welcome to Come Towards Delight, the podcast. I'm your host, Mike Gregson. My mission is to find everyday people who are delightful. The people I interview have attractive energy and a positive outlook on life. And I want to give them a platform to share their stories so that others can have hope in the midst of their struggles and see delight in a world that at times can seem gloomy. I will uncover the life experiences of the guests that I interview, which have enabled them to look at life in such an inspiring and delightful way, with the belief that to understand the light, one has to be acquainted with the dark. My guests will share their personal experiences on finding their way through dark and hopeless times and give us a glimpse into the powerful gifts they received in their darkest hours to rise up, take up hope, and view life through new, hope-filled eyes. Is it possible that in our darkest hours, we are given a gift to find the light which leads to our greatest delights? and welcome to another episode of Come Towards the Light, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Gregson, and I am excited to have a wonderful guest on with me um, who I've been able to connect with um, recently over the last couple of months, and just I've been able to be inspired by her. Uh, her name is Tara McCausland, and she is the host of her own podcast called Still Rowing. And it's awesome. And I would encourage you um, to go to her podcast and, and listen to it. It's, it's a very cool message. Um, each episode, she interviews somebody very much like mine. And then towards the end, I love her final question as well. She says, why are you still rowing? And I, I love that. I think that is such a cool question. Um, but anyway, Tara, as, I, as I've connected with you and as I've been able to follow you on social media and just listen to some of your podcasts and what your what your story is about and what you're trying to do um i feel very grateful that um i i cross paths with you because it's always it's always so nice to meet somebody who in some ways is like-minded in trying to bring light into the world and of course obviously testify of truth and and help people find joy by finding the truth and purpose, right? Mm -hmm. And you do that. And I'm so excited that you come and join me on my show. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. Yeah. So, so if you don't mind, hop on and tell us about yourself. Yeah. Well, so first of all, again, thank you, Mike, for having me on. And I actually interviewed Michael on my podcast and released his episode. Uh, I guess it was just last week and it was it was a treat to hear your story. I had heard it before listening to your your podcast, but to hear it firsthand, um, it was powerful. And so I will thank you for the light that you're bringing into the world. And again, appreciate the opportunity to, to be on your podcast. But um, so I am a Utah girl born and raised in Petersboro. If you know where that is, I'll be impressed. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Where, where is that? So Petersboro is in Cache Valley, west of Logan, but it's, it's a small, well, it was at the time I haven't been there for a while, but it was a small little town. Uh, we grew up on a farm, one of seven kids. And I would say that, um, I had a, a fairly typical upbringing. Uh, anyone looking from the outside in at my family would have seen a pretty successful and happy family. And I think that 
we were in many, many ways. Uh, my family, we sometimes were called the Von Traps because we would go and sing together at <laughs> different church events and community events. Um, so we were very musical and we liked to be involved in the community and uh, in our schools. Um, so I think we would have been seen as one of those families that was that was thriving. Um, and I myself, uh, I'm very musical. I'm very confident, was born with just a very outgoing spirit, almost to <laughs> the dismay of some people. Um, My gosh, I was, I, I wanted, I think I'm, I was supposed to be Justin Timberlake and somehow we crossed like tubes coming down to earth. <laughs> do you sing? Do you play instruments? What do you do? Yeah. So I grew up playing the piano. I'm a pianist and I played the cello from my sixth grade year up through my junior year. I, I quit again, much to the dismay of my, <laughs> my orchestra teacher, but yeah, music was a big part of my life. I was involved in uh, community service and leadership in my school. So I was very active and very determined in everything that I did. So again, I had a, I had a happy uh, upbringing. Um, but like many families, we had a skeleton in the closet. And you may have heard the saying, you're only as sick as your secrets. Yeah. Um, and there was a secret in my home. And I would say there was an undercurrent of just this unease, this unrest in my home. Um, again, a happy home, but I could sense the the anxiety at times in my parents how old were you when you started to sense that um well i can't honestly say that it was before the first disclosure when my dad came forward the first time about his addiction um but it, it became very clear in my teen years that something was awry but when i was about five um, I believe I was five. My mom gathered us all together in my parents' bedroom. And I honestly can't even remember if my dad was present. So I was young, again, fuzzy memories, but I just remember her gathering us and telling us that uh, my dad would be unable to baptize my older brother because he had made some choices that had um, caused him to be disfellowshipped from our church. And so that was kind of the beginning of the next, uh, not quite 20 years of this big uh, overarching question of what is going on exactly. <laughs> because we, we were only told because there was some kind of uh, discipline happening within the church because of my father's choices. So that was the beginning. Um, move forward uh, a number of years. So when I was 12, so we had been living in Cache Valley and my family had, had really uh, put roots down there. And that was our home. And then kind of out of the blue, my dad said, we, we need to move. We need to move to Orem. And the plan was, was that we would uh, rent our home in Petersboro and we would come back a year later. And this, uh, this was major upheaval for us kids who had grown up in this very rural area with lots of friends and family nearby. And 
And then we moved to like the city in our minds, middle of Orem, Utah, where our next door neighbors were, you know, <laughs> so close. And the, the little four-year-old girl would come and knock on, on our door at, you know, eight o'clock in the morning asking for breakfast. It was, it was total culture shock. <laughs> it's hard as a 12-year-old to just like uproot and go and, and you don't, it sounds like you didn't really know why too. No, it was, again, I, there were so many things that happened during this period that I, I didn't really understand the reason until I got older. You're a fish in a fishbowl when you're growing up and you just kind of go along with things and it feels normal until you look backwards and go, that was so bizarre. <laughs> Why did we do that? And come to find out again, you have to understand that there was no clarity at this point for any of us kids as to why certain things were happening. And even for my mom, she believed at this point that my dad was sober. Um, but he wasn't. He was actually frequenting strip clubs and hiring prostitutes at this point. And the reason why he wanted to move was because he was doing a lot of traveling for his work at that time. And he'd have to go through Salt Lake City. And in Salt Lake is where he would act out and hire prostitutes. And so um, unbeknownst to my mom, um, he decided kind of of his own volition that if we move, then that will kind of put me out of temptations way, if that makes sense. So I don't have to do so much traveling and maybe I can clear this up on my own. So we moved and again, total culture, culture shock. I think that was probably one of the first times in my life where I understood what it meant to be lonely. I remember sitting by myself um, at lunch and for someone who had been so social and had so many friends, it was a really hard disorienting time. And my whole family was really struggling. Um, and we were only there for a brief time. But I mean, in my 12 year old brain, it felt like an eternity, but it was only like three months. <laughs> yeah. I can imagine too, that if you felt like you were going back to Cache Valley in one year, it's like, you go and you kind of I mean, you're not really, yeah, you want to connect for sure. You want to make friends, but like, I'm sure you that all you're doing is thinking about your friends back in Cache Valley and that you're, you get to go back there soon enough. Right. Right. Yeah. And that was always the hope and the plan, um, which made what followed even more challenging for us because a, a year came and went and we actually moved from Orem. We were all struggling so much in that place that I actually recall my mom and I, I should ask her why she did this, but I was so unhappy where I was. And so were my siblings that she literally came and just plucked me out of school one day <laughs> and, and said, we're going to Springville. <laughs> We're renting a home in Springville. We're all miserable. And we had some family in Springville. And I was like, okay, we're going to Springville. And um, so we we did uh, find a little place to rent in Springville and, and ended up staying there and, and ended up staying in Utah County for the rest of, well, my parents actually still live in, in uh, Mapleton. Um, but fast forward then to 1997. So we, in that time frame when we were moving, we moved about three times in a year. And for a family that had been very settled, <laughs> this was very tumultuous and confusing. 
And again, hindsight is 2020. I didn't realize, nor did my uh, siblings realize why it was all happening, but it was my dad running from his addiction and um, trying to find ways to to get out of temptations way. He really did want to change, but he didn't have the tools. He didn't have the resources. And, and at the time, again, through this period, my mom would think that he was sober, that he, he was clean. But in 1997 came my dad's second disclosure. And I was about 14, 15 at the time. So I'm old enough now to get that something's really wrong. <laughs> Um, again, I recall her gathering all of us kids and telling us a story about a about a pioneer woman who had carried her her sick husband in their handcart across the plains. So it was 1997 was the bicentennial year yeah. when the pioneers came to the Salt Lake Valley, and she'd been doing a lot of reading about these you know pioneer women that were just full of strength and grit, and so she felt like. It was her job to ultimately just save my dad. So she had even gone to the length of like buying a little hand cart <laughs> and a blanket with a pioneer woman pulling a hand cart and, and said, I, I remember distinctly, we are going to pull together as a family and we're going to help your father and it's going to be okay. And <laughs> for a 14, 15 year old girl who, again, we've been moving a lot. There hasn't been a lot of st stability. I'm completely dumbfounded. I'm like, what is going on? Again, the only reason why we were being told was because my dad was being disciplined um, because of his actions. And to his credit, he had come forward by himself. He hadn't been discovered. Um, but he he wasn't there he wasn't present maybe he was but i don't ever remember him saying anything and so it was just this big uh looming question mark of what is really happening and what is wrong how did you with my dad dad if that i mean if you guys if you guys knew that but but like he wasn't there discussing it and talking through it with you did, did that make it like really awkward when you were around your father at that, that age? It did. So it was the, it was the elephant in the room that we never discussed. And so I, I recall my dad, like he, he still would work a lot and travel a lot. And so he was gone a lot, but when he was home, he wasn't, present if that makes sense and so often he would be kind of hidden behind the newspaper or listening to the radio or watching a jazz game and and I remember and I I believe that this is true for my siblings as well as we would really try to connect with our dad uh, around things that he liked and enjoyed because we knew that if we could talk to him about about the jazz game or about what he was reading in the news that he, that he would engage with us and again to my dad's credit there are so many people who struggle with addiction who are addicts of many things uh, and you understand this well <laughs> with your story um he wasn't he wasn't 
uh, an addict of many things. He was a sexual addict. He didn't have substance abuse issues. Um, he wasn't a mean addict. And again, count my lucky stars, but he was a neglectful, emotionally absent addict. Yeah, I get that. And, and as I've grown and learned more about the nature of addiction, again, it's the shame where we hide. We don't want to be seen for who we really are. We're afraid of being discovered. And so there, there was the shame that would keep him quiet, the double life, because he didn't want to expose, I think, himself and his, his past. Because this, this had been a problem since he'd been a, a teenager, he and maybe it's some some backstory to help uh, our listeners understand. So when my father was five, he came across his first pornographic magazine in his brother's room. And um, he, he, you know, he wasn't looking for it. He just found it. And it was interesting to him, as often, you know, pornography is to a. A, a curious child and he um as he tells the story he went and brought the magazine to his mom and showed it to her and she just took it and didn't say anything to him no conversation no conversation about it and again you have to remember that that generation we don't talk about these kinds of things. They're very hush-hush and very shameful, very taboo. And so at the age of five, he had this experience with pornography and it was interesting to him. So he continued to seek it out. Um, but over time, you know, as you well know from your experience, addiction doesn't just want more, it wants different. And so he... As he got older, he progressed into like somebody introduced him to masturbation. So he started masturbating with pornography and then he became sexually active in high school. And um, it wasn't actually until after he was married that he started engaging in uh, more illicit activities like uh, prostitution. But that that is the trajectory of porn addiction. It's, it's a sad note. I can't, and I can't even fathom that your, your dad was only five and this is a generation we're talking. Yeah. Where all this was taboo and, and you, you found it through magazines where now we can find it in the things that we have in our pockets. Right. I mean, it's crazy yeah. to think that he found it as five and five. I want to, I want to say something real quick, mention something when you were talking about how he was a, a neglectful ad, addict, right? Yeah, that there was a lot of shame in his life. A, a scripture came to mind um, in James when you said that, and it, it just makes complete sense. But in James, uh, I can't remember the chapter and verse right now, darn it, but I remember the scripture, and it says, "A double ma a double minded man is unstable in all his ways." And and isn't that the truth? You know, mm -hmm. trying to live when we when we think we can compartmentalize one piece of us here that is in total discord with like who we try and be on the other side, it doesn't work. And it makes us unstable in everything that we do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for my dad, it was a total Jekyll and Hyde life that he led because like so many people who struggle, particularly with porn and sexual addiction, and I'm not sure why this is, but they become masters at lying and deceit and, and at the facade 
And so we were a very religious family. I mean, we, we prayed every night and we did our best reading the scriptures. You know, we all struggle with that. I think you mentioned on, on the episode you did with me, you get through first Nephi like a million times. That stories. <laughs> right. Um, and we, we did a lot of the things that a good Latter-day Saint family would do. And my dad specifically, he, he would go and do his, it used to be called home teaching and and he was a full tithe payer which is a really important thing in our in our faith and in our church he would go to the temple um he served in callings and so he, he my dad is a little bit bit of an anomaly because some people can't stand the hypocrisy and so they just leave yeah but in my dad's case, and I believe that he's really a unique man because I know that God knows what we can become. Yep. And he, he, I think often will patiently wait for us to come to ourselves <laughs> so that he can do with us what we were intended to do and who, and turn us into who we were meant to become. Into that well said and i gotta say something too because it's, i think this is important to point out it's just because we it when we when we make mistakes or when you're very religious right we call it sin when you when you sin it doesn't mean that you don't love god and i think sometimes we try and detach that it's like oh if, if you sin that means you don't love god or you don't love God in the right way. You're kind of hip- hypocritical in that sense. You say something, but you act totally different. I don't know that that's fully true. I think, I think our our love is only it's limited for sure by our by the actions that we we do. It's it's more of a submission thing, right? But I would have to guess and venture that your dad's a full tithe pair. Your dad's trying to go to church. Your dad's trying to. He's trying to live this life, but he's got this other thing that's just, he's addicted to it. Mm-hmm. He's got to feed that addiction, but he's still trying hard to do this other thing. And so I, I think, I think sometimes if we, if we think that way towards an addict, we can go, Hey, that doesn't mean that we just need that we should treat people harshly. Like if we give grace, if we give mercy and extend that love of, I, I feel like your heart is good. How can I help you get the rest of your life there? Do, do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 Well, and so I, I actually work uh, with my parents now and I'm kind of jumping ahead a little bit. Um, they have started a foundation to help individuals who struggle with pornography and sexual addiction. And I, I want to get more into that as we finish this story, because we're not quite there yet, but um, I do all the social media for uh, SA lifeline foundation is what it's called. And um, I've noticed kind of the tone around addiction online and, and the shame around it. And again, it's, there's a lot of taboo, it's a taboo subject and a lot of stigma around if you're an addict, you're a bad person. And I, I feel like it's really important to send this message of, no, I can choose to have empathy for those who are betrayed and those who are addicted because there is, there are wounds 
on both sides. And whether or not you're the perpetrator of that wound or you've been wounded by an individual, if I'm saying that right, we're all broken in some way. And so my dad, like so many other addicts, he had trauma in his life early on that that kind of it was curiosity and uh, initially that got him into it but when you're five and seven and ten like your ability to understand what you're doing is pretty limited and so I don't know that there was any other way for my dad uh, to learn how to cope because he had found this thing that he was able to escape the, the hurt and his his reality sometimes and medicate. And so, you know, I, I can see as the daughter of an addict, how I, I knew my father as well as I could at that point. And I knew that he wanted to do what was right. I knew that he loved God. I I remember him standing at the pulpit and, and bearing powerful testimony of of the reality of God and his plan for his children and of Jesus Christ and his love for us. And so I, I knew that, but I guess as we move forward in his story, I think what's most important is that he didn't like so many people do if, if they have an addiction or if they're struggling deep in sin, they run away from God or they it's easier to not believe in him because that causes pain and dissonance. (laughs) And my dad didn't choose that, which we'll get to. Um, But kind of rewinding, and I hope this is making sense for our listeners. We're kind of jumping all over the place. Awesome. And and I I love that you're putting context around what, you know, like his heart and what you think he's doing. And I, I want you to keep going, but I want to, I want to come back. So I've got a lot of questions about your mom around yeah. too, because I, I think understanding her role and what she is doing in, in reaction and responses to him and, and really trying to work with you guys as kids as well. That's, that's a very important thing to discuss too. So let's come back to that as well. Okay. Well, maybe I'll just touch on. So for me personally, again, as a, as a, teenager (laughs) going back to this second disclosure that feels like it was a long time ago but as I was telling this story um I was confused I was um concerned and I remember some very tearful prayers on behalf of my parents I, I remember specifically one night with my with my head and in my hands on my bed crying thinking I don't know if my parents are going to survive this whatever this is um but through this period what sustained me and what sustained me later was my faith in God I didn't have a full grasp of really what God could do for me and for my for my father at this point I had a pretty surface level understanding of the atonement of Jesus Christ and what grace really is. But, but prayer sustained me, prayer sustained me during this time. And, um, and I'm grateful for that because, you know, those types of things can really weigh heavy on a teenage mind. But I found that through prayer, I could, I could shake off those feelings of fear. They didn't linger. And I was able to move forward, which I credit God for that. I'm glad you asked about my mom. 
She's a saint. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll lead out with that. <laughs> pioneer as well. My gosh. I mean, as you, as you, I just got to say this real quick, but as you were telling the story and you said she bought this little pioneer hand card, I'm like, yeah, because every time she looked at that, it gave her a little strength to just carry on, right? Like, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's really important for people who are listening to understand that there are cases when we're dealing with loved ones who are deep in addiction where we need to leave, where the marriage needs to end. Um, But the first and second disclosure, my dad was, was honest. He, He came forward of his own volition. He was accountable. He was genuinely remorseful. And, and so I think because of that, my mom was willing to stay had he not been, if she had discovered him, I don't know how that would have changed things, but, but my mom saw in him a desire to change now, whether or not he had the tools to do so. And the humility to do so is, is another question. He didn't at that time, but that's what kept her there and her faith in God. Um, she believed strongly in the covenants that she had made and she was willing to, to leave it all out there, to, to put her best out on the field uh, and not um, abandon the marriage and the family, even if it was very painful for her. And so because of his apparent desire to change and her faith in God, that's what sustained her in many ways. But it was hard. Um, again, I have memories of watching my mom and seeing the pain in her eyes, she would sometimes come out of her bedroom red-faced and teary-eyed. And you know what? When you're a kid and you can just see that your your mom, who's supposed to be invisible, invincible, maybe is that the correct term? Invisible. <laughs> In, yeah, invincible. Um, she was clearly struggling, and as a younger person, I. That didn't affect me as much, but later in my teen years, when I became more aware and more cognizant of the fact that she was human, that my parents were human, they had real problems, you know, (laughs) you know, that realization when you're a kid, you're like, oh, my parents have feelings. (laughs) They're not robots. Oh, my goodness. Um, And I, I think I was probably a junior or senior at this time, but I do remember distinctly a couple of things. One afternoon, my mom, I could tell she had been crying. And, and I can't remember what she said to me only that she just, she, I think, asked me to pray for her. And for my dad. And during this time, again, addiction has so many ripple effects. Um, at this period, again, there, there, there were three disclosures, but in between the time, those times, my dad would like white knuckle for a couple of years, and then he'd go back to behavior because he just didn't have the tools, you know. And I remember one afternoon, my mom opening the cupboards and saying, looking at me, and saying, I don't know where we're going to get money for groceries this week. And again, it's like, as a 
a 17 year old that weighed so heavy on me. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but you know, my dad was spending hundreds of dollars on prostitutes and, um, and my mom was struggling just to buy groceries. And so it was, it was an era in my life, a period in my life where, you know, I was thriving in many ways, um, as an individual, but my family was suffering and I, I was a fixer <laughs> and I remember putting my arms around my mom and wishing I could take away this pain. But obviously as a 17 year old naive girl, all I could do was, was hold my mom and pray. <laughs> um, but time went on and, you know, I graduated from high school and I went to college went to Utah State, go Aggies. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I was I was coming and going a lot during this period and really didn't have any idea of what what was happening between my parents and at home. Things seemed to be okay. <laughs> um, but I, I chose to serve a mission and I had a really positive experience there it was so hard but it was so good for me um Where'd you go? i went to england the leeds mission and yeah i always in fact we just had the missionaries here tonight <laughs> and uh, i was asking them why did you choose to serve a mission i wanted my kids to hear that you know and I told them, you know, I wouldn't say if I'm going to be honest, it was the best 18 months of my life, but it was the best 18 months for my life, for my life, because <laughs> it was hard. It was hard business. I'm not going to lie. And, and let's be honest. So my grandpa was a mission president in Manchester, England, and I went out to visit him. And although there was a lot of conversions out there in Europe, that's, that's also, a, it's a tough place, right? Like, Oh yeah. Yeah. For, for proselyting, it's, it's not the easiest place in the world. So, yeah. Yeah. So I don't want to spend too much time on the mission, but that was, I would say for me, uh, a hinge point for me in many ways uh, in who I am as a person, uh, my, my connection and my, my relationship with God and my love for humanity because prior to my mission, you know, I'd grown up in Utah, hadn't been exposed to a lot of diversity. And here I'm suddenly in England where it's just this melting pot of humanity, you know, and I met people from all over the world. I remember meeting a woman from Eritrea <laughs> and I was like, is, is that a country? <laughs> Where in England is that? <laughs> right. Anyway, um, but what I discovered as a missionary was that God is working in all of his children's lives and that as a member of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I didn't have a corner market on truth. I, I came to love and respect people whose ideals and backgrounds were different than my own. And I'm so grateful for that because I like, I am all in member of the church of Jesus Christ. Like this is, this is where I found peace and where I found Christ. But I know from my experience as a missionary moving forward, that truly God does love all of his children and that there is an opportunity for each of them to know him and to be redeemed 
by his son. And whether in this life or the next, you know, there's a big plan that includes everyone. So I don't know if you want to keep that in. It feels kind of like a <laughs> tangent from the story, but it is though that is so important because there's light everywhere. Yes. Absolutely light everywhere if we seek it. It doesn't just have to be found in the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. Yes, we know it to be the fullness, you and I, but it's everywhere and it's in people. And that that word, Tara, and I, and I know we're not gonna we're not gonna be here, so I may cut this out, but I, I just gotta say that word that you said, humanity. That is a beautiful word to me. And and I and I'll, when we're done recording tonight, I'll tell you about an experience I had with that word with the guy that plays Jesus Christ in The Chosen. Oh, cool. Just a really neat experience with him. And he, they stayed at our hotel to film. And I'll tell you about it after, but I mean, okay. that word is beautiful. And when we understand that part of humanity, there is compassion that flows through us. And we just want to love and embrace and learn about everything. Yes. Amen. <laughs> so I would say that was really the beginning for me of, of seeing seeing the divinity in all people, which I felt like beforehand, I just hadn't been exposed to enough, sure. if that makes sense. And so I needed to go outside of Utah and, and, and see more and experience more to, to really get the breadth and depth of God's love for everyone. But, um, so the mission was a great experience and my parents actually came to pick me up, which was both a blessing and a, a great difficulty. It was two worlds colliding. <laughs> and, um, and actually this is an important piece because I think this kind of illustrates what it was like to, to live with my dad. So here my parents come to, visit me in England and, and to bring me home from my mission. And at the time, the election was in full swing. So this would have been 2004, okay. the election in 2004. And I remember my dad being in our little bed and breakfast with the TV on, just, you know, blaring the news and kind of pacing. He was fully engrossed in what was on the TV and not engaging with me, his daughter who had been gone for the last 18 months. And I don't remember feeling particularly hurt at that time, just more puzzled. Like here we are in England and you haven't seen me and you seem to be more, more concerned about the state of the election than, than connecting with me and asking me about my experience. And so come to learn. <clears throat> so I, I got home and got, got back into life pretty quickly and got engaged and got married within six months after returning home. Um, but I will let you know that I knew this guy <laughs> well before my mission. <laughs> um, and he's a great guy. His name's Luke. Um, so I hit, I was fairly newly married at the time. I think we'd only been married for three months at the time when this third disclosure came. Wow. So um, I remember very vividly, it was a Sunday afternoon. Um, my parents had invited us over for dinner and we got there and immediately my dad invited us to come to the back patio. He wanted to speak to us. And I could tell by the look on his face that this was not good news. 
And so my heart was already sinking before he started to talk, but he sat us down and proceeded to tell us that he had been arrested for soliciting a prostitute some weeks prior and that he had been excommunicated from our church that day. And maybe actually he may have said, I'm most likely going to be excommunicated because he had just come forward to the bishop that day. So let's correct that. He, he knew he was going to lose his membership. And so again, understanding that all this time prior, I didn't know what the gravity of the situation was. I didn't know really the depth of my father's addiction. I didn't even really understand that he had an addiction. And so this was very startling. And I immediately just started to sob uncontrollably. And my mom was sitting next to him, kind of just stoically. I, I could tell she was just numb from it all because he had just told her that day. Um, and it was a really unusual feeling in the, the deep sense of betrayal and the anger and the sadness that I felt as I looked at this man who, someone who I, I loved and trusted and admired for so many reasons. And to hear him tell me that he had been engaging in this behavior, that he had been going to strip clubs and with countless prostitutes, it was, it was heartbreaking. But at the same time, there was this level of relief because all those years prior, I was so confused. And the disconnect that I felt from my dad, I don't know that I felt this so much, but I know that I had siblings, a sister in particular, who felt like my dad just didn't like her because he wouldn't engage. And, and so while there was this tremendous amount of pain, there was just a sense of, finally, I'm hearing the truth. Because when, when there's the secret, um, I think the family takes on the shame too. And I knew that there was something wrong. So it was an an unusual day on, on so many levels because there was so much emotion, but that was the day that we started to heal as a family. The day that my dad finally got honest and accountable in front of all of us. And he chose to tell each one of his kids and their spouses separately. And so we were all spread out. Some of my siblings were in other states. And so he made the, a phone call. Um, he And my brothers were nearby and he told them. And, and the reactions varied. Uh, the girls were distraught and crying and you know, beside themselves, sad. And my brothers were just red faced, yelling, angry, mad. But again, to my credit, my dad's credit, he, he chose to, to tell everyone that day, honestly, and appropriately. And I think for anyone who's listening, who maybe this is something that you're dealing with right now, perhaps you have this secret 
and you're dealing with pornography and sexual addiction in your home, I will tell you that the worst thing that can happen is not your kids finding out. The worst thing that can happen is for you to never come clean, <laughs> to never share. Because again, the shame, you, you pass it on through generations with the secrets and the high hiding and the lying. And so I think the first step to healing and it has to be honesty. And, you know, very fortunately, my parents were both willing to be there and to share. And there might be occasions when you have uh, an addict who is unwilling to share, and it might be the partner who has to disclose on their own the reality of what's going on. But we, we have to disclose yes. to move on. Yes. And, and, and my parents, um, they did. And that day, my mom said, I will watch carefully to see if your father will do what it takes to change. And interestingly, Mike, you know, those two times that he, my dad had disclosed before, my mom was trying so hard to control and to fix my dad. She, she thought that she had the power within her to, you know, get him to therapy and get him to 12 step. And, and she was like a policeman. She was trying to force this recovery on someone who, who didn't really want it yet. Yep. And the third time around before my dad told all of us, after he had told my mom, the story goes that she went out on her front lawn and she put her hands up in the air and she said to God, take him. I can't do this anymore. Take him. And she surrendered the control. And so it was, it was both my, both of my parents being willing to give to God what they couldn't fix themselves. And that's when change started happening. So from that day on, again, my dad was excommunicated and he should have been. <laughs> um, but that was his rock bottom. He had been arrested. There was a realization that he had to change. And I should say that um, he, when he was arrested and picked up, he, the officers saw that he had picked up a prostitute, but he didn't actually act out with the prostitute. And so legally they couldn't prosecute him. So uh, I just share this because he wasn't, there were no legal ramifications involved. Um, my dad decided on his own to come forward and, um, and it was because he believed in God and he realized it's like, who am I fooling? I believe in God. I believe one day I, I will meet him and I believe I will tell him my story. Who am I fooling? I I'm dying inside. This is killing me. So I can either come forward and there's the possibility that I will lose everything which was a real possibility that he could lose his marriage. He could lose his job. He could lose his membership in the church, but he, he was willing to come forward because he was in so much pain. And he believed that 
if he came forward and started to change that there could be relief from the pain and the doom, as he described it, that he was feeling that if I don't change, I'm in big trouble. That's very, that's a very real feeling too. Uh, are, can I, can I ask you a few questions right Please. Now? Yeah. Wait to where your pants are at now. Yeah. There's, there's so many questions that, that I could ask right now. And it's this, it's a pretty amazing story. Um, tell me, tell me if you will, like, go, let's go back to that part where you said, Hey, look, you got honest. And all of a sudden it's like something changed. There's like a weight lifted off your shoulders, if you will. Right. And in my mind, as I'm hearing you say that as an old addict myself, um, one of the first things you learn in 12 step is that honesty principle. Like you have to be fully honest. And, and what came, what came through to me when you're telling your dad's story is like, Hey, look, if we're not honest, then we're not taking ownership. Like, even, even if we say like, well, yeah, I did that thing, but we're telling a bunch of lies. We're not, we're not really fully accepting accountability for it. Right. And if we don't fully take on accountability and ownership of what we're doing, if we don't own that, how do we ever ask for forgiveness for that thing? It's not a true repentance. It's not a true Hey, I'm sorry, because we we don't actually fully account for what we've done. We we kind of justify and say we 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 blame things, right? Like it's this, it's because of this, or well, I was feeling this way, and so I did this. But until we actually step back and go, I did that. That was my choice. That's what I did. Mm-hmm then we can feel the weight of its sorrow and, and we can own ourselves. And, and do you, when you, when you saw that in that moment with your, with your dad that day, do you feel like that kind of carried that spirit kind of carried with him forward from that moment on? Yeah. Well, there was um, not only this willingness to account for the choices that he had made, but a humility there that hadn't been present before. And I think that that was really, that was what triggered the big change was that he recognized, again, it was his, it was his arrest that helped him understand I'm in a really bad place. And it, it, it was this turning point, this hinge point for him because he recognized I can either continue on with this life of deception and be in this pain that I'm feeling because I know there is a God and I know I will account for my choices or I can choose to come clean and be honest and accountable and believe that through Jesus Christ, there can be healing for me. And I think it's, I don't know if it answers your question, but one of the most beautiful things that my dad shares as he tells his story. And by the way, if you're interested in hearing my dad share this story, I do interview him on my podcast. I think it's episode six. Awesome. Um, but as he tells it, so before he told my mom, he was laying awake some nights after he'd been arrested. And she didn't know at this point that he'd been arrested and what had gone on. 
And he kind of had this come to Jesus moment with God as he was reflecting on, do I believe in God? And do I believe that I will meet him? And he, he could only say yes to all these questions. And he said, how foolish can I be then? Um, and he said that night I determined that I would the following day, because the following day was a Sunday that he would come forward to my mom, to my Bishop before 9am. And he said, once I had made that decision in my heart, I knew that God knew because I felt immediate relief. He said, I, that gave me enough relief and enough courage to make good on the promise that I'd made to myself. And we believe, you know, in the church of Jesus Christ, we talk about the atonement a lot. Um, and I think sometimes we think that we have to do so many things like after all we can do, that's when grace will kick in. But I, I just have to tell you, it's been my experience watching my father and in my own life that grace is always working, always. is always present. And especially the minute that we decide that we're going to turn toward Christ, then he will carry us. And he will give us the strength to make the necessary changes, whether it's in addiction or whether we are the betrayed, whatever is ailing us. But the minute we decide and are that intentional, I will give this to Christ and I will choose to change, then magic happens. It's amazing. That's awesome. I Thank, thank you. Like that, what you just said right there, I, I, the spirit was absolutely in your words. And what you just said is so true. Um, we'll never do enough. I, I mean, we can't, we don't, we don't know how we, it's just, we're not, we don't have that ability. That's, that's not our job, but Christ, that's the reason he came. That's the reason why God gave his son and the grace was already offered. And as soon as we connect to him, um, as soon as we, with our will, our choice, choose him, he's right there immediately. And um, that's, that's powerful. That's beautiful. And, and there's, this, there's this other thing that keeps coming to mind, too, with your dad. God likes sorrow, right? There's, there's this idea of like, oh, I'm so sorry. But like there's still the excuses that you hold on to in your mind to try and make yourself feel better. That never mm -hmm. works. <laughs> it's weird how that never works. I know. Um, <laughs> but when you have God-like God sorrow, that's when that humility and that meekness, meekness comes into your life. And to me, the, the two most powerful words in the dictionary are humility and meekness. And they're the ones in this world that probably be laughed at the most, right? But a meek person is somebody who in every thought thinks to God in mm. every thought with gratitude, with, with trust that you'll put me in the right place of where you want me to be, not where I want to be, but you put me where you need me. Help me to make a difference today for you and put me where you want me to be and help me to say and do the right things that you want me to say and do when I'm in that moment and, and help me to know, right? That's meekness and that is power because mm -hmm. when you are that way, when you're living that way, 
you are letting God lead you and he is the creator of everything. And so what, what more could you ask for than that right there? And, and that's what your dad did. And then, and then of course, as his story goes on and I'm, I'm going to let you take over again, but now he's giving back. Right. So, so that godlike sorrow, it carries. And all of a sudden you, you wake up and you have new eyes and you have this new heart and you want to sing about it, right? Like you're in harmony with this, like, wow, this spirit is real. It's, it's, this is amazing. There's so much light here. Christ's atonement is absolutely real. It changes, it purifies. I'm a new human being, right? Mm -hmm. Now he turns around, he and your mother both, and they're giving back and they're trying to lift people. They're trying to meet people where they're at and help them come through their dark spots. Yeah. Well, I have to say before we start talking about all the good that they are doing and how this ugly gift, (laughs) I should say, this was one of the greatest gifts, but it was given in a very ugly package. Um, Ugliest gifts that I've received in my life. Um, But it's it's blessed me in so many ways. It's hard to describe. I want to emphasize that my mom would have left had she not seen a true desire to change and that she was prepared to do that. But I think it's important if you're in this crisis mode in your marriage, one of the pieces of advice that a therapist might give is wait some time for things to settle before you make any major life decisions. And so my mom gave it time and my dad gave it time and, um, and, we as kids gave it time. You don't, you don't heal overnight from this kind of betrayal. And, and there was a lot of healing that had to take place for all of us. And so slowly my dad started behaving and doing in ways that um, could rebuild trust. But it's really important to understand that forgiveness and trust are not the same thing. And so that day, I can honestly say that I was able to forgive my dad. And I can only credit God for that. I was able to put my arms around him and tell him that I love him and forgive him. Again, totally a gift from above. Um, But there was a lot of pain that I had to wade through weeks and months following a lot of fear. I didn't know if my parents' marriage was going to survive. I don't, I wasn't sure that my dad would, would be willing to do what it took to find recovery because sobriety and recovery are two very different things. My dad had been sober in his life, but he hadn't been actively working recovery, which someone put it really well. Sobriety is what you don't do and recovery is what you do. So sobriety can be not acting out, not looking at porn, not seeking out prostitutes, but recovery living is a whole new way of life. It is going to therapy. It is going to 12 step. It is being honest and accountable when you relapse. It's doing all of those things that will keep you in sobriety. So you can't have recovery without sobriety, but you, you can be sober and not be in recovery. If that makes sense. That was so well said. That was beautiful. And so my dad did start again, like of his own volition, not because my mom was pushing him (laughs) to start making those changes and slowly started rebuilding trust. And meanwhile, we were all watching, but we forgave and that helped us to heal. 
so regardless of what my dad chose, ultimately, I knew that forgiveness was a gift that I gave myself so that I didn't harbor this resentment and this pain and this anger, which can destroy us. And so my mom did the same. And each of my siblings in their own time were able to forgive my dad. But the trust was built slowly over time. And as I waded through those hard days, I found solace in prayer. I talked to my husband and sometimes I would rant and felt a little bit like a man hater, like how, you know, but, um, I got it out of my system. And I think it's really important to feel the emotion as well. We can't, we can't heal if we don't feel, we have to feel all the ugly and the pain and the sadness, and then we can process it enough to dispel it. And so that was a big part of our journey. Some of my, my siblings went to therapy and we all dealt with it in our own way. But what was, what has been such a great gift through this period is that there was still communication from my parents. It wasn't like a one-time deal where we all sat down and talked about addiction and my dad's stuff. And then we didn't never talked about it again. We talked about it constantly. And we asked my dad, how are you doing? What are you doing to stay in recovery? And we kept him accountable and he knew that we cared and we knew that we loved him enough to hold him accountable. And um, so it became this joint family effort. <laughs> you, you, yeah. When you talk about it and you're open about it, it's it's funny because we think everyone's going to hate us and push us away and be so dis. And, and yeah, for a minute, but just like you said, let the emotions go, let them pass, and and somehow love will come back. And of course, it's still a choice for us, no doubt. I don't want to like say that it's not, but what happens to an addict when they're healing and they're in recovery is they start to talk about it all the time. And the reason that we do that, and I say we, because I, I, I was one. Um, the reason that we do that is because first of all, by saying that out loud to you, I'm holding myself accountable. And I also am asking you to do the same thing for me. And I need to know that I'm safe with you, that I have somebody who, if I screw up is going to come and, and let me know that they're disappointed. That's, that's true recovery. And that's exactly what your dad was doing. And you guys rallied around him. You, you find your team when you opened up, when you open up and, and you're vulnerable and you're transparent, even with your toughest stuff, people aren't going to run away from you. They run to you. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I really feel like I need to emphasize because I know that there are so many people that are dealing with this. Sure. And they haven't come out yet because they're afraid, whether they're the addict or they're, they're the betrayed. There's so much shame in this. But what I, what I want to tell anyone who is listening, who is struggling in silence, please reach out and connect. And, and there, there is help and there are resources. And I guess that should bring us to this next point, which is this is, this is really what our pain can do for us. I think when we take our pain and our ugliest, messiest, darkest parts of our life and we use it to bless the lives of others, then it can become sanctified. It, and that's through God, that's through Christ, that all of that pain, all of that ugly, all of that mess becomes this beautiful gift that we give to those who suffer. 
and then they can go out and bless. And, and so it's just this, this reciprocity that we all have pain. We all have pain, whether it's addiction or uh, physical or mental illness, whatever our pain is, if we can find purpose in that pain and, and turn it around and find ways to use that pain to bless our fellow men, then it, it will not have been for naught. That is why we're here is to help those around us. And I believe that God gives us weakness and pain so that we can see the, the darkness from the light that we can, we can distinguish the two, but that we can become uh, great helps to our fellow men. And it gives us experience so that we can bless the lives of others without hard experience. We can do nothing for those who suffer and struggle. We must suffer in order to be able to mourn with those that mourn. And so my parents, some years later, I think it was about 10 years later. Um, no, it wasn't that far out. Uh, Nick's the time frame, but some years later, my mom had gone back to BYU and she was taking a class and they were supposed to um, come up with something that could be of some type of service to the community. And so kind of out of nowhere, she decided that she was going to do make some type of a foundation called SA Lifeline. And it was kind of, <laughs> so it was, a, it was a school assignment, you know, um, but it's blossomed now into this, not just a foundation that's providing resources and education for people to help them understand the nature of addiction and betrayal trauma, but um, 